This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, we're so glad you're with us for the next hour. This is an opportunity for you to call if you have a particular question or issue that you're facing in your life or you want biblical counsel on or a text that's challenging and you're trying to understand its original interpretation and its application for us today. If we can be of help, again, the number locally is 843 843 South Carolina Exchange, um, 525-1859, or you can call us toll-free at our 877 number, and that is the call letters WAGP980. Either of those numbers will get you through. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we'll receive it here in the studio. We also receive questions directly through email, and the email address is tbl. That stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. If you email us, they'll show up here on the screen in front of us. So, Rick, it's good to be here again on uh, this uh, beautiful Tuesday. And uh, let's go ahead and begin with some of the questions that have already come in to us. Indeed, Pastor. Okay. Uh, Ryan writes, what podcast does Dr. Brogy listen to, if any? Oh, that's a good question. Um don't really listen to too many. I listen to a guy named um, Amir Safardi. I think he spells it T-S-A-R-F-A-R-T-I, Safardi. He's a Jewish believer who lives in Jerusalem, and I, I like uh, him because he puts out a thing, oh, maybe about once a week. It's called Behold Israel, and he gives an update uh, of what is happening uh, on site in Israel in terms of events and uh, various uh, particular theological war issues, uh, prophetic issues. So he, he's a good Jewish brother. I also listen um, to Zola Levitt's Pre- Presents. That would be the other one. I, to be honest with you, I just don't have time to listen to a lot of these things. But, but those are two that I catch on the run from time to time that I find kind of interesting. You also listen periodically to Dr. Al Mohler's uh, briefing. Oh, that's right, the briefing with Dr. Moeller. So I haven't listened to him maybe in about three or four weeks, so he wasn't fresh in my mind. But occasionally I'll, I'll get on a roll with Dr. Moeller. And he's the president of Southern Seminary. And that's a very, very good um, uh, little podcast that you can get. The thing I like about Dr. Moeller is he tries to intersect the most recent current events, primarily in America, with uh, biblical truth. So he does really a superb job at that. And so Al Moeller is a real scholar of sorts, and I have great respect for him. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, 
And Carl from Roundo, South Carolina, writes, It appears that Dr. David Jeremiah will be sharing the stage with Joyce Myers and Joel Osteen in an upcoming Pastor and Leaders Conference called Jumpstart. I've always admired Dr. Jeremiah's teaching, but this concerns me. Is he shifting? Your thoughts, please. Well, um, I don't know, you know, what on earth he is doing by agreeing to be on this platform. I think it's a huge mistake on his part. I'm actually planning to write him a letter um, because here he is, you know, going on the platform with some people whose theology is just wacko and some people who speak at Jumpstart that I would just say outright heretical. And so why he would, there, you know, there's a time for us to separate biblically on not what we would call, you know, secondary issues that are not a test of uh, orthodoxy. You know, I can fellowship with a Presbyterian brother who believes you should baptize infants. Uh, You know, I think he's wrong, but it's not a test of fellowship. We can pray together. We can even announce some program if he's on the radio that, uh, you know, he might find helpful um, but I, I would not want to um, fellowship with someone who is associated with heresy. And so the Jumpstart Conference is not healthy. It's not mainline evangelical. And so they have speakers there that, um, you know, are not all solid people. And some of the speakers in years past are just, you know, uh, questionable over, you know, the deity of Christ, over, you know, just just a, a wide range of issues, too much to cover here. So I, I don't know where he's going and why he's doing this. I fear that, you know, it's an opportunity to get a lot of exposure to sell books. I don't know. That's the only thing I can figure. But some of the people who are speaking are not good, and I, I, I think there's a time to separate. And so I don't know where Dr. Jeremiah is going, but I'm going to write him because we promote him on our station. And if he's going to go leftist and, you know, to be on the platform with people who are egalitarian that are, you know, blurring gender issues and gender roles in the body of Christ, then we won't be able to continue to cover cover him here on WAGP. And I hope that he values that, and I hope he values other evangelical radio stations that still have some theological parameters. So I'm going to give him a chance to respond. A number of people have written him on this. I mean, there's a lot of people who have written him on this, and I'm told they're just getting back uh, kind of a form email um, that really doesn't address the issue. So I'm not going to address him in terms of uh, his radio ministry. I'm going to write his church. Uh, I'm going to send the letter to his church, and uh, I'll probably address it to the membership uh, director because I know then it will ultimately get to him because at least someone is going to open it. So anyway, good question, Carl. I wish I could give you a fuller response right now, but I can't. But um, you'll know my answer here probably in the next couple of months. All right, very good. Our first caller this morning would like to know, How does an unbeliever suffer in hell since they will no longer have a body? Well, they will have a body. So what happens right now for the Christian? And this is a great question. And by the way, I will cover this in our Revelation series uh, 
because when we come to the 20th chapter of the Revelation, we deal with the doctrine of eternal retribution, and that's kind of a hidden doctrine in our day. No one really wants to talk about hell, and it's too old-fashioned, and you know, you don't want to be a hell, fire, damnation preacher and classified in that way. And and I will say that there are some pastors who seemingly enjoy preaching on hell. I don't enjoy preaching on hell, but I have to preach on hell because God commands me to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. But I don't, uh, I, I've heard some pastors in years past who seem to almost take a great pleasure that God is going to send people to hell. God himself says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't enjoy sending people to hell. And originally, of course, hell was not made for man. It was made for the devil and his angels. But let's look at this on both sides. When a Christian dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so when the Christian dies, he is immediately in the presence of the Lord. Is he in his resurrection body? No, he's not. But he appears to be in some kind of a intermediate temporal body where um, he can even wear a, a white robe, as pictured in the Revelation, where these are people who are still awaiting the resurrection. So if you've lost a loved one here in the church age, the church began on the day of Pentecost, they're not up in heaven dancing in their resurrection body because they haven't received it yet. But neither are they apparently some kind of a floating spirit. You'll be able to see them, recognize them, and they are awaiting the final body that God has for them. In addition, there is the same reverse truth that is true for the unbeliever. To be absent from the body is to be present in Hades. And so there's only one descriptive uh, section in all of the Word of God in terms of in the New Testament on Hades, and it's the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 16. Some would say it's not a parable, in that it names an individual, Lazarus, who's pictured in that, you know, dialogue that Christ gives as the believer, and the rich man who's pictured as the unbeliever. Um, Whether it's a parable or not um, makes no difference. If it is a parable, then it's the only parable in all the New Testament where Christ actually names an individual. In either case, um, a person who dies today goes to Hades, and it is a place of torment. Um, Now, is Jesus describing the ultimate end of Hades? I don't know, but there's obviously a place of judgment and torment. And we do know that the resurrection of the unbeliever happens at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. So after the thousand years, Jesus said, or Jesus said through John, because Jesus gave the revelation to the apostle John, Uh, that you're blessed if you're a part of the first resurrection. And so the first resurrection program, of course, began with Christ's resurrection, that handful of saints that were raised after, after he came out of the grave and then apparently taken on to heaven, a handful of Old Testament saints. And that's, you know, fitting with the Feast of First Fruits and all the imagery there, then the rapture of the church, then at the end of the seven-year period, there's also included in the first resurrection. Uh, there is Old Testament saints who are resurrected, and then there is also tribulation saints who lost their life who are resurrected also at the end of the seven-year period when Christ comes back to the earth. That's all part of the first resurrection program. You're blessed if you're a part of the first resurrection because only believers come out of that resurrection. 
The second resurrection are the lost of all time. And of course, they're brought out of the grave in a resurrected body. And so they have to have a body just like you have to have a body. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This mortal must put on immortality, Paul will write. This perishable must put on the imperishable. Likewise, the unbeliever's body that he carries now, that human spacesuit by which you identify him, it's not suitable for hell because hell is a place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. If we went into hell on this natural body, it would be consumed in seconds. But no, he too receives a resurrection body. And so Jesus speaks of two kinds of resurrection. Um, He speaks in John chapter 5 of two kinds of resurrection. He said, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man. And of course, um, he says, one set will come forth to a resurrection of life. And then he said the other set will come forth to a resurrection of judgment. So bodies are going to come out of the grave. Now that time frame is further elucidated for us in the Revelation. It's separated by at least a thousand years for many people. But there is a kind of resurrection for the believer, and there's a kind of resurrection for the unbeliever. And the unbeliever will experience a body that will never be consumed by fire, never be eaten by the worms. He will be conscious. He will be suffering, and he will be unrepentant throughout all of eternity. His state will be eternally confirmed. Now, there are people today like Seventh-day Adventists who teach annihilationism. Uh, They say that when you die, uh, you're just annihilated. You just cease to exist if you are a non-believer. Now, they don't teach that for the Christian, but just for the non-believer that the non-believer will not spend an eternity in hell. But may I remind you that the same word that's used for the eternal God and the same word that's used for eternal life and the same word that's used for eternal judgment, ionion in Greek, is the same identical word. So to say that God is not eternal would be to say that hell is not eternal or to say that heaven is not eternal. But God by design uses the same word. So Jesus in the parable of um, the coming judgment. It's not really a parable, but it's a, it's a teaching of the judgment that will take place at his second coming when he judges the nations. There's a number of judgments. There's at least four, and if you include like the judgment of Satan and the judgment of believers today, you come up with seven, but there's at least four resurrection kinds of judgments that are elucidated in Scripture. And most people think of this just big one general judgment where all the saved and the lost are brought together, and and that's not what the Scripture teaches. And again, if you're with us in the series on Revelation, we will carefully go through these. But Jesus describes the judgment of the nations, that is, of the Gentiles that happens at his second coming. So when Jesus comes back to the earth, those who have survived the seven-year tribulation will also meet the living God in judgment. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, something to drink. And and a stranger, and you invited me in, and naked, and you clothed me, and sick, you visited me, and so on. And then they'll say, well, when did we do that, Lord? And, And he'll say, well, whenever you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Because when I was hungry, you gave me nothing, thirsty, nothing, stranger, didn't invite me in naked, you didn't clothe me, and so on. And they'll say, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And again, he'll say, to the extent that you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so again, he's talking about his brethren, literally the Jewish people. Remember, the nation of Israel is going to be the center of attention during the time of the great tribulation period. And the way a Gentile treats the Jew will be indicative of whether or not he's come to faith. Those who follow the Antichrist will hate the Jew, they'll despise the Jew, they'll ignore the Jew, they will be true anti-Semites. But those who are converted will treat the brethren of Christ righteously, and so you will know them by their fruits. And of course, these who did not care for the Jew during the tribulation period, these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Same word, eternal. It's forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So when a man has been in Hades, in Hades ultimately is turned into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 11 to 14, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So Hades continues, but in the final resting place of all unbelievers. And by the way, for those annihilationists, who teach that hell is not forever. And, and I, I bring this up today because this is a best-selling book, or it was for weeks and weeks and weeks on the New York Times best-selling list by Rob Bell. It's called Love Wins. And he teaches, well, in the end, everybody goes to heaven. That's not true. You know, hell is forever. It is forever and ever and ever. And even in Revelation 20, it's interesting, before um, before. Christ, you know, casts the devil into the lake of fire. A thousand years before, he casts the Antichrist and the false prophet who served alongside of the Antichrist into the lake of fire. And then, uh, so you can read about this in Revelation 19 and in 20. And so then when he casts the devil into the lake of fire, uh, it says Satan will be released, uh, he'll deceive the nations, that's a sermon in itself, and and then the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also being tormented day and night forever and ever. So a thousand years before, the false prophet and the beast, Revelation nineteen twenty, are cast into the lake of fire, they're still there a thousand years later. And so the judgment never, ever, ever, ever ceases. So just like you need a resurrection body to be prepared to walk on streets of gold, the unbeliever is going to need a resurrection body of a different kind where he will live in it for all of eternity in a place of judgment called the lake of fire, Gehenna hell. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on this morning's Bible line, you can also Email us at tbl at wagp.net. And uh, David from Portland, Maine writes, someone asked about their priest telling them only to vote for Donald Trump. It seems to me this is becoming an issue among evangelicals, but in a different way where there are, uh, where some are saying that single issue voting alone cannot push our party of selection and that we should give people freedom to vote for Democrats if they feel they will do a better job on other issues. What do you think, Dr. Brogy? So that was a question that came in earlier about uh, someone, I think, from Maine or something about their priests. 
Or maybe they weren't from Maine. Maybe they're from New Jersey. Yeah, that's David from Portland, Maine. Yeah, but this is David following up with that oh, question. Oh, oh right. Okay. Because uh, we had someone else say, yes. I think their priest said you should only vote right. uh, for Donald Trump. And what did I think about that? But this stirred, I guess, another question to this fella in terms of what I think of single-issue voting. Well, um, here's the rationale. Some would say, well, you know, you have Democrats who um, maybe are favorable to certain Christian values in areas A, B, and C, uh, but they're wrong, say, on abortion. And most Democrats, at least on the national level in the United States, are pro-murderers. Let's just call them what they are. They are murderers. They are baby killers. They have no problem with killing little babies. In fact, they have no problem that it's part of their platform that we want to protect the right of a woman to murder her little baby. So let's just say what they mean. And so the rationale is, well, you know, we haven't been able to do that much in the realm of, you know, Roe v. Wade. So maybe if we vote for a Dem who's going to care for people's needs in this area, that area, you know, it would be a a better thing. Well, if you take anything and you exaggerate it, sometimes you can step back and see the wisdom. So let's suppose we lived in Germany during the reign of Hitler and his party. Would we as a Christian want to vote for a Nazi who, you know, hated the Jewish people, wanted to annihilate the Jewish people, was successful in exterminating six million Jews, Would I want to vote for Hitler because maybe he had two issues over here that were more reflective of biblical counsel? Of course not. The the treatment of the Jewish people was was absolutely heinous. And so in terms of, you know, single-issue voting, um, you know, we could argue certainly with Nazi Germany that we would not, you know, vote for them no matter how many other good things they would do. So let's just take a modern-day Democrat. They are committed in their party to the relentless slaughter of innocent babies, not to mention their promotion of LGBTQ lifestyle. And listen, you're going to have to live with this, Christians, this LGBTQ thing. It's getting so bad, there's no telling what is going to happen. There is a Democrat who is arguing that you know we should provide legislation such that if um, it hasn't come to fruition yet, but this, this is the way some of these people think is what I'm trying to do. Let's say you have a child who comes out and they want to be transgender, and you as their parent says, I don't want you to be transgender. And the child says, but I want to be transgender and I want to get my body operated on. And a young teenage girl wants to have her breasts removed. There are Democrats who want to give her that freedom. And what will happen if you as a Christian protest that? You say, no, I want you to wait till you're 18 and you can, you know, make the kind of decision you want when you're 18. There are people who are saying that your children that don't think that way should be taken away from you because you're an unfit parent. That's where we're headed with this thing. It's, it's inconceivable and it is changing so fast every single day. Day. I mean, it's it's just incredible. That's why, you know, I get upset when, you know, you have a Beth Moore who's, you know, promoting Jen Hatmaker, who argues for same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage is evil. It is evil beyond evil beyond evil. And, you know, you can't compromise on these issues. And the more you darken your light, 
I, I, I get that with a Beth Moore, okay, because she's already wacko. She's nuts. I mean, she's crazy. And any pastor who would allow her Bible studies in his church is either A, ignorant of what she really stands for, or B, he endorses it. But, you know, um, that's why the thing that surprises me is David Jeremiah and what he's doing by speaking at this conference. See, that, that's, I, 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 would, I could see Beth Moore wanting to do this because she already rubs shoulders with Joel Olstein because she wants to sell more books. And Joyce Myers, who, you know, they, they want to sell books and, you know, and feed off of greed. Why David Jeremiah would want to do this, I have no idea. But I'm going to personally ask him. But here's the thing with the Democratic Party, single-issue voting, look, you know, what is worse than Nazi Germany? They exterminated 6 million-plus Jews. We've already exterminated 60 million babies in America. There's 60 million Americans who are missing because of Roe v. Wade. 60 million, and then think about all the children that are missing that those people would have had. And two, in addition... Because America has led the way in morality, they say there's upwards of 600 million babies that are missing across the planet because of abortion. And if Abel's blood was screaming up into heaven, I can't imagine what heaven's ears are listening to today. So these issues of abortion and these issues of promoting the LGBTQ lifestyle, they are planks in the platform of the Democratic Party. So I could not see how any good Christian who knows his Bible in good conscience could vote for them. Now, I'm not saying the Republicans are pure, because there's some Republicans I wouldn't vote for. But with that said, uh, the fact is, is that at least it's not a part of their platform. And at least they're trying to, you know, think a little bit differently. And it's the Republicans, as you, I think most of you know, though, um, there's a few Democrats who have been involved, too, in promoting some of these bills in the state, states, these seven states that have passed pro-life bills. And their their goal is to make this a, a, an issue in the Supreme Court. And that's a good thing because Roe v. Wade could be overturned, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure where some of these guys would ultimately come down, but we seem to think that maybe we'd have the votes where it would be overturned. I hope so. But if it's overturned, then it goes back to the states. And at least Alabama could say, well, no abortions in our state. I hope South Carolina, when they reconvene next January, they'll be able to say, no abortions in our state. Missouri, no abortions in our state. Georgia, no abortions in our state. But you go to New York and get your abortion, and if the day the baby's the, the day before the baby's born and you want to put a knife through your child, you can do that. But at least we can protect life in some states and raise the light a little bit harder. So these are the kinds of things that we're 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 dealing with. And too often people are voting their pocketbooks and not their conscience. And we will give an account for every decision we make as Christians. Let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. Yes, I'd like to say, uh, you think the United States government is the modern-day Pergamos where Satan dwells? And also, I'd like to make a comment about these seeker-friendly churches. Do they did the acronym today? The SF. C stands for stand for Christ, or they're sorry, fearful compromisers. So, what do you think about that? 
Well, I think you're right. I think they're sorry compromisers. And their goal is to create a large number of people. And so a lot of these young pastors have, you know, watched the Rick Warren, Bill Hybels model. And they say, well, if we do it like they do, we can really fill the place. And they do. And what I find interesting is that a lot of, you know, unbelieving pastors have taken the Rick Warren, Bill Hybels model. Of course, Hybels is out of it now. Uh, because of, you know, moral compromise, very sad. But they take their model and their methodology, and it works in, an, it works in a pagan church, so to speak, a church that doesn't even have the gospel, and it fills seats. So the question is, has God called a pastor to preach the Word of God? What is he supposed to do on the Lord's Day? He is not supposed to entertain the people and drop a verse here and there to make it look Christian. He is to preach the word 45 times in the New Testament. He is to teach sound doctrine. You cannot do that with the absolute nonsense that is going on in churches across the country. And so, yes, we do have some of the largest churches in American history, but with the least amount of influence. And that's very, very sad. And so the church today is very worldly. So when a pastor gets up there and he uses, you know, Games of Thrones as an illustration to his sermon, you know, a a wicked, wicked program that just finished, I guess, seven years of broadcasting with upwards on a busy week of 100 million Americans either watching it or live streaming it. It's basically porn put onto television with nudity and like never been seen before on public American television. And when a pastor gets up there and he uses that as an illustration or talks about, you know, well, you know, I I like this movie. I'll just, you know, try not to watch certain scenes. That's wicked. That's how depraved the American church is. And it's really a heartbreak to know what is happening here in America um, to say, you know, the America is, you know, Pergamum would be a little bit of a stretch. Uh, Pergamum was a real church that Christ addressed. It was one of the seven churches, and I have a whole message. I did a message on each of the seven churches, and if someone is interested in listening to the message on Pergamum, you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org. You can also download an app for your phone, and you can listen to it while you're on the run or working out in the yard or cutting the grass or whatever you may be doing, and and that would be an important message to hear. But I think what we have in America today is a Romans 1 scenario, and the thing is is it's not just happening in America. It's now happening in nations across the planet where people refuse to give God thanks and praise. And so that's what we formally did in the 1960s where we said that we're going to deny that God is the creator. We're going to make science our God. We're going to let science dictate to our children where they came from. And so now the theory of evolution was taught as a fact, and you're ignorant. And Pat Robinson is utterly ignorant to come out 10 days ago and to tell people across America on his program that pastors like me are ignorant for believing Genesis 1 through 11 and for believing that, you know, the creation has not been here for a hundred million years. Ken Ham was right when he asked Pat Robinson to repent of that evil. He 
undermined what God has plainly taught, what Jesus affirmed in the New Testament. That's wicked. But the U.S. governmental school system, and this is why it's so dangerous today to have your kids in the government school system, and if you can get your kids out of there, do it. Get your kids out of the government school system. They are being brainwashed beginning in the kindergarten and first grade thing. They're, they're being taught a set of values that is so far from the truth and so anti-God and anti-Christian, you cannot imagine it. You say, not my kids. They're in a good public school. No, they're not. I don't know that there's a good public school left in America. The thing has gone down the tubes, and I'm grateful for the Christians who are principals and administrators, and they're trying to have an impact in the government school system. But the fact of the matter is, is that they may be a strong Christian, and they've got some steel in their spine, and they're able to stand up and not compromise. But a little child who's eight, nine, ten years of age doesn't have that. He's innocent. She's innocent. And they are trying to program the mind and and bring kids to a whole nother way of thinking. So we said, no God, no praise, no thanks. And so God gave us over to sensuality. And we witnessed that in the 70s and the 80s and 90s. Did we repent? No. And so God gave us over to homosexuality. This is the progression in Romans 1. And then the third and final stage is when God gives a people over to a depraved mind, a reprobate mind, you could render it an upside-down mind, where you call good evil and evil good. That's where America is now. So now I'm the homophobic, gay hater, because I teach what God says. And if you, you know, endorse homosexuality, or at least are, you know, amenable to it, then you're the good guy and I'm the evil guy. That's where we are in America today. And it is sad. And the only thing that could turn it around would be a nationwide revival. But I don't think that's going to come. I, I, I've given up hope on that. You say you're unbelieving. No, I'm not unbelieving. I know what the scripture says will happen at the end of time. Now, that's not to say that we couldn't have a revival locally or in a particular college campus, or in some segment of the culture. But I think, because I know my Bible well enough, that God is setting the stage now for the return of his son. And if you're a Christian, you should do everything that you can to preach the word, to tell people how to get saved, to be faithful with the gospel. And by the way, we, for those who I know a lot of people download this a week or two later and they listen to the Bible line and they listen from other parts of the United States. We're getting ready to offer now on Search the Scriptures a booklet that I wrote, Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend? And we will give them out in packets of 25 or 50 if a person promises to use them, either hand them to people and the way to hand them. And I'll even, I think, write up a little instruction on how to give them away. Hey, this is a little booklet that is kind of a summary of the Bible. Would you read it and tell me what you think? Uh, That would be one way you could share it, or you could actually walk someone through it. Many people listen to me right now have never led anyone to Christ. And it's not because you don't want to, but you're not sure how to. So we will give them away. All you have to do is pay for the shipping, but only with a promise that you will pass them out. 
So um, that's what we need to be doing in our day. We, we need to be sharing the gospel like never before, because I'm telling you, time is running out. It is running out, and I think we're over the edge as a nation, and uh, it's really, really sad. But Jesus said these days would come and that we're not to be fearful of them, but he told us they would come. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, you can also email us at tbl at wagp.net. Has uh, Pastor Carl heard of Fresh Air Home, which is a Christian camp off Tybee Island, is our next question from a caller. Um, This caller wants to know if it is a safe place to send his child. I don't know, so I won't comment. I would have to research it, and if I were researching it, the first thing I would do would probably be uh, to go to their uh, homepage, I would assume that they would have uh, some kind of uh, doctrinal statement. I'd want to find out who they're with, uh, what they believe. Um, But again, you know, in our day, you can have groups and even churches with sound doctrinal statements. The problem is they don't follow them or believe them. I was in discussion with um, uh, a United Methodist pastor, and he was, you know, taking heart over the fact that uh, you know, the United Methodist Church uh, did not endorse gay marriage, and there's the Book of Discipline that will back it up. And I said, I'm not sure why you're taking heart. I said, the only reason we don't have gay marriage in the United Methodist Church in America is because the African Church outvoted the American members. And had not the African Church, that is far more biblical than the uh, Church, United Methodist Church in America— we would have gay marriage. But then I said, forget that for a moment. The fact is, is that they still continue to promote gay marriage. Methodist ministers perform gay marriages. And while it's not, quote, unquote, legal, neither are they exercising church discipline. They're just turning the other way. So they might as well have it is what I'm trying to say. It's just not officially sanctioned yet as a denominational doctrine. So my point is, is that you can have a sound doctrinal statement, but not necessarily follow that statement. So I don't know enough about it. I would want to know, A, what their doctrine is, and I would more importantly also, just as importantly, I should say, want to know how the kids are handled, uh, who are the people who teach them, how are they screened, how are they protected. Look, we live in a day of perverts. We live in a day where churches and even camp ministries are what I would call soft targets. So you have to you have to protect your church from someone who would come in from the outside thinking that they could molest your child. And there's a lot of molestation that has taken place at quote unquote Christian camps. So again, I'm not making any kind of a comment on this organization because I do not know, but those would be the kind of questions that I would want to ask and answer for myself before I sent my child to that camp. And I'd also want to ask, too, what my motivation would be for sending them to that camp. Now, our church, uh, send out missions. we send out missions teams in the summer, and we have a missions team. Rick, you want to comment that on that camp that they're headed to this summer? The... Um Camp Grace, camp Grace. Is, is an amazing camp. It's about halfway between uh, Beaufort and Atlanta, and um, 
they take inner city kids from the Atlanta greater metro area and they uh, give them an opportunity to spend a week. Uh, these camps are held on a weekly basis in a rotation and uh, volunteers that are solid Christian evangelical believers go there and they, uh, they play games. They have an opportunity to witness to these kids and uh, uh, they're given an opportunity, these kids that uh, normally they would never even have in the inner city. And so it's a, an opportunity for refreshment and to be fully exposed to Christ's promises in a loving atmosphere. So that's like one kind of camp. And it used to be that, you know, camps were a great outreach. Here's the challenge in our day. Suppose your child goes to this camp, and let's just say for the sake of argument, they're sound doctrinally. Let's just say for the sake of argument that they indeed have good personnel and that your children are being protected, at least physically, the question you also have to ask is, are they being protected mentally and emotionally from other children? Because if you have a child who goes there, you know, the average age now for a young man in America to see pornography is 12. And Satan is using this in a powerful way. And some of these boys, 12, 13, 14 years old, are already hooked on porn. And so their parents sends them to this Christian camp to try to help them. And then what is that young man going to do with your child? What is he going to talk about? What is he going to expose your child to? So we have to take a lot of precautionary steps in the day that we live in. And so um, it makes me a little bit leery of sending my kid off to a Christian camp if I can't be there with them during these critical years where their personality is being shaped and Satan wants to pull them down and ruin them. So I would just say be very, very careful. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Beverly from Newington, Georgia writes, what do you think of Leighton Flowers comments and books on Calvinism? Leighton Flowers is a good guy. He's a, he's a Southern Baptist leader in fact, I, I think his title, if I remember, is he's over apologetics for the state of Texas. But what he's done is he has not uh, bought into what's becoming a popular byline through a few of the SBC seminaries that are very Calvinistic and who are five-point Calvinists. Now, again, you know, I mentioned Al Moeller. I listened to him. He's a great brother. He does a super job with, you know, his podcast but I don't agree with him in terms of his five points of Calvinism uh, any more than I would agree with John Piper and his five points of Calvinism. But with that said, Leighton Flowers is trying to argue biblically that, hey, listen, the five points of Calvinism, are they really being taught in Scripture? And he's actually had quite an influence in rescuing some people from that mindset and teaching them differently. I try to do this myself in my Romans series. The the key passages that you're dealing with is like Romans 9, Ephesians 1, John 6. Those are like three central passages that deal with uh, the whole subject of uh, Calvinism. And so he does a great job, I think, in uh, looking at some of those and some presuppositions that John Calvin carried to the text because he believed that God was done with the nation of Israel. He could not see Israel as the center focus in 9, 10, and 11, but that's the focus. Uh, 
you have to be educated to his position. You, you don't just automatically believe it. Someone has to logically, so to speak, argue into that position. It does not come from the simple reading of Scripture. And they do all kinds of gymnastics with words like foreknowledge and so forth. And um, so, uh, you know, I don't know that I've—I uh, haven't read any of his books. Let me just say that. But I do know that I've heard him speak a couple of times, and he's a good brother— I think he might even have a podcast as well that you could listen to, um, but I'm not sure I would necessarily agree with how he came to uh, a conclusion on every single verse, but overall I would agree with what he has said, and what he is doing is important because Calvinism, you can say what you want, and the Calvinist says, well, no, this is not a reason not to evangelize, this is a reason to evangelize, because God already has picked and chosen the people that he's prepared for all of eternity. Fact of the matter is, is they are in last place in terms of doing evangelism. They're in last place in terms of conversions and baptisms. They're in last place in terms of sending missionaries around the world. So they can say one thing out of one side of their mouth, but the reality is, is that they're not really doing the work of an evangelist as a way of life in encouraging their people to do the same. Because in the end, you know, all the elect are going to be saved anyway, so why do it? So um, anyway, he's a, he's a good fellow. Yeah, I'm looking at his uh, website and the latest post. I'm wondering if he's had a change of position because he leads off with the five points that led me to leave Calvinism. Well, that's right. So he's, he's not a five-point Calvinist. Oh, he's not. Okay. No. So his whole ministry is basically to argue against the tulip theory. And to say that it's not true. Now, he would, I think, <clears throat> argue for certain aspects of TULIP. But TULIP is kind of an, an acronym for total depravity, um, which is the T. And so he might define total depravity, depravity a little bit different than I would. But um, I, I think he might be a little more Arminian than I am on his T. Uh, unconditional election that God unconditionally elects people before the foundation of the world, some to go to heaven, some to go to hell. L, and he would reject that, as I would too. Um, Again, the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. It's not a matter of does God elect, it's how he elects. On what basis does he elect? And I would argue he elects on the basis of his foreknowledge. And they would say, well, foreknowledge is God lovingly choosing some people in eternity past to be saved. And I would say, no, that's not a proper definition of foreknowledge. And if you look at the verb and the noun, prognosco, there are many illustrations where it just means beforehand knowledge. I mean, obviously, God is omniscient, and he knows everything. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. But God in eternity past is able to elect people knowing how they would respond freely to the gospel of Christ. Irresistible grace, that's I in tulip. And again, can a believer resist, can a, can a person resist God's grace? And I would say yes. Now there comes a point in their life where because of decisions of the heart that they made, they won't resist it. But can they resist it? Stephen, when he stood up, he says, you're always, you're just like your father's always resisting the Holy Spirit. They were resisting God's spirit. Calvinists would say because they're not elect. And then P, perseverance of the saints, and um, I'm sure he would ascribe to that in terms of um, the fact that when you're saved, you're saved forever. 
And of course, the reformers, when they spoke of perseverance, they were in balance here and that they spoke not just of the fact that you will persevere, but there'll be a certain lifestyle that will accompany that perseverance. So anyway, uh, Leighton Flowers, I think he has a podcast, and if this is an issue you really want to study, he would definitely be worth uh, exploring. All right, very good. We had another caller who was listening to you talk about the state of America, and the caller would like to know if you think God will do what he did for Nineveh and Jonah. Well, you know, Jonah obviously uh, was the prophet that God used to go preach to the Ninevites. And the book of Jonah really is pretty simple. Uh, It's four chapters, and it really falls along the chapter divisions. So, you know, in chapter one, God calls him to to preach, go to Nineveh. But that would be like um, a Jew today to be sent to Iran. The Iranians hate the Jewish people. They despise the Jewish people. Now, there are some believers, obviously, in Iran. The church is small, but who love the Jewish people because they love God. But as a nation overall, as a Muslim nation, they want to drive the Jews into the sea. And so if you were a Jew today and God said, go preach to the Iranians, you'd say, they hate us, Lord. They want to destroy. Why do you want me to go there? And so being the patriot that he was, he went in the opposite direction. So in chapter 1, he's the prodigal prophet. In chapter 2, he is in the belly of a great fish, and he prays. And you would, too, if you were there on that foam blubber mattress. And he's praying to God, and he's seeking the Lord God. And then God vomits him up. And in chapter 3, he's the preaching prophet. And he preaches to a population of some 600,000 people. Uh, and those numbers are pretty sound based on what God says at the end of the book and to what archaeology affirms. And then in chapter 4, he's the, pro- he's the pouting prophet, just kind of crying under his little weed bush that God sprouted up, and um, his perspective is not real clear. Now, did he make it? Yes, he wrote the book of Jonah, and he wrote his shortcomings and what, what he went through. But Nineveh represents the single greatest revival in the history of the world. There's never been a greater revival than what took place in Nineveh. Sad thing about Nineveh is 100 years later, God writes another book about the Ninevites, and the next generation repents of their parents' repentance, and they want to destroy Israel once again. Um, and so uh, could God send a revival? God can do whatever he chooses to do. Could he send a revival to America? Yes, he could if he chooses to. But there's going to come a point in history because God records it for us where there's not going to be a revival. And when I see all the pieces coming together, especially as it relates to the nation Israel, especially as it relates to the coming of the Son of Man that will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, I think we've reached beyond the point of a mass revival across America. Now, I pray that God would do great works in the hearts of the American people. But it's not unbelief for me to say, I don't think there's going to be a mass revival. I think we've passed that line. And I think if there's anything God's people need to be doing, we need to be getting ready. 20 years ago, I used to say there's one of three things that could happen. God could bring a revival. He could bring us into another dark ages, or he could bring back his son from heaven. But so much has happened in the last 20 years. So much has happened in the last 10 years. So much has happened in the last 12 months 
in terms of what is taking place in the world. You've got to be almost blind and totally ignorant of the Scripture to miss the fact God is setting the stage for his son. But I know there's Reformed people out there who think there's no future for Israel. Their eschatology is stilted in the wrong direction and tilted in the wrong direction and stilted in terms of how it motivates them to uh, uh, to see America. But lay all that aside. Um, God, is, God is preparing the way for his son to come back. And we are not to change what we're doing. We don't throw up our hands and say, well, it's all over. No, it doesn't matter if I knew Jesus was coming back next week, next Tuesday at 11 o'clock when the Bible line starts. I would not change anything in terms of what I'm going to do this week. I'm still going to live for Christ and have my time with him and pray and share the faith and invite people and do everything that I can. And we're to do that to the very end. Mm, All right. Very good. Well, we've only got two minutes left. I'm not sure that uh, we have sufficient time to address any more questions, but a couple of promotional items. Uh, We do have the Mothering from the Heart call-in program that is heard here on uh, Thursdays at the same time, 11 o'clock. Your wife is uh, able to uh, answer a number of questions that come in from women who have uh, concerns about uh, the Bible and how it applies to their family life. And uh, uh, that, again, will be this Thursday at 11. And of course, uh, this Wednesday evening, you resume your course on finances God's way. And what is uh, this week's topic? So we are in just the first section of the course. The first section is a little longer than the others. We're dealing with the, what the, God says about giving. So we began to explore, you know, the basis for giving, God being a great giver himself. Uh, we began to look at the tithe and what God says about it, what he doesn't say about it, why some Christians have come to the conclusion it doesn't apply today, and we'll pick up on that uh, this coming Wednesday. But I would say to some dad out there, you're teaching your young man, your daughter, how to manage their money uh, now's the time to teach them. If they're 12 or 13, you should bring them to this course uh, because they're going to learn what the Bible says about giving, about saving, about debt. They don't automatically get that, especially in this culture. Their mind has to be renewed, and God renews the mind through Scripture. So this would be a great opportunity to instill those principles so when they leave their home, your home at 18, 19, 20 years of age, they're already living and practicing Uh, what God says in this realm. All right, well, we're out of time. Thanks for being with us today on The Bible Line. I hope you have a great day. 